Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, Numbers chapter 30 is where we're at tonight. Uh, it says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So a lot like last week where we did the devotions, and I'll just, as a quick reminder, devotions are morning and night. Remember this from last week? Devotions are every week Sabbath. Devotions are every month hang out and party together. And then devotions are these yearly holidays that come together for the people of Israel. So that's what God asks for his people, the reasonable service he asks from them. And I want to say that because, again, numbers is progressive. And if that principle isn't in place, then making vows to the Lord doesn't matter. Let me give you an, an example on that because this is complex. We're getting into more complex theology. If I don't have a daily devotional life, I have no business promising the Lord that I'm going to be a missionary in Afghanistan. None. I don't want evangelists that are not healthy in their daily devotional life. Make sense? If you're not committed to a fellowship of believers and there isn't accountability there, you shouldn't be out making vows for the kingdom doing things. Like you should be in that body. There should be accountability. There should be devotion. So as we get into vows tonight, because we're hitting hot button topics tonight, we're going to talk about males and females. We're going to talk about going to war. We're hitting all the stuff that gets people angry about the Old Testament in one night. Um, but let me just say again, this is progressive. And this is the kind of chapter people pull stuff out of context and say, look, God says males and females are different, which by the way, is something you can just see with your eyeballs. But it's also something that's progressive and part of a larger narrative in the book of Numbers, where these people are finding their way with the Lord. They fail more often than they succeed. 40 years, the heart of Israel transforms into one of zeal and passion for God, just like our hearts should transform. So over 40 years, that happens. We don't make vows until that zeal starts to appeal in our hearts. So first of all, and, and again, conditional, that zeal to do missions is not a bad thing. It's an amazing thing, but it's born out of your relationship with God. It's not born out of your will to be a champion for the kingdom. And that's a really fine point that's hard to explain to non-Christians. So is it good or bad to go do missions? Well, if it comes out of a love for the Lord and you want to, and the Lord's just given you that zeal to go build relationships with people across the planet, amen, Britta. Like if that's there, then do it. And in fact, if you don't do it, it's a sin. But then on the other hand, well, so I have to do things or I'm not saved? No, that's a works-based philosophy and that doesn't work either. There's a balance here that has to be found. If I get saved and then I immediately say, I'm going to go change the world for Christ. Well, then you get all the glory. And that's not the point of our relationship. It has to be, I get saved and then you say, I'm going to devote myself morning and night to Bible study with my Lord and I'm going to get to know my God. 
And out of that, God starts to direct you where you should go and he guides your steps. But if the guiding of the steps and the relationship isn't there, then just shut off the podcast. This is the end of the teaching. Go back and do previous chapters and numbers. Like this is progressive. Make sense? Now let's get into the hard topics. Um, I, I, one verse to back that up. I don't want to give an opinion without backing up with the word of God. So Paul talks about this too, right? This is a concept that's in the Old Testament that's really well fleshed out. And I love how Paul says this. You know this verse, I bet. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Do you have it memorized? You go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love. I have, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, that's impressive if you can prophesy. I can have prophecy and I can understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have faith so that I could remove a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Right? And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. And praise the Lord, we don't live in a church where we're thinking, I might get burned tomorrow. None of the works matter if the relationships and vows aren't there. And that was last week's teaching. That devotional life has to be in place. And if you don't do that and you go out and proclaim the name of Jesus without a devotional life, it's like going into army naked or going out into a war battlefield with no armor on whatsoever. And Paul also talks about the armor of God. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you enter a classroom as a teacher? Because we have a lot of teachers in here. And not arm yourself with daily devotions and weekly a weekly group of people to fellowship with. Don't do that. So when we talk about vows in, in this, this first passage, if a man makes a vow, verse two, we are talking about something that comes out of that place of zeal. Does that make sense? You got your daily devotions and you're like, Lord, I want to give you more. And that's super healthy and it's beautiful and it's reasonable. If you get a God of the universe that's blessed you with a changed heart and you have a relationship with them, you think, Lord, how can I serve you more? That's the natural progression for Christians that are in the right place with their God. It's also the Great Commission. We shouldn't resist that. In fact, every Christian is commanded to share that zeal with other people, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's changed your heart. So they go together very closely. So when we have love, the vows are a natural and healthy outpouring of that love. And I don't, for me, maybe I'm making a big deal of something all you think is super easy. That took me about 20 years to figure out because I kept feeling guilty that everything I did for the kingdom seemed to go nowhere. And the problem was it's everything I did for the kingdom. And anything I do is a dead end. Until I figure that out, God doesn't have much use for me because I'm just going to go out and keep doing dumb stuff like the Israelites did when they charged up the mountain at the beginning of Numbers with no relationship with the Lord. And it, it all got messed up. So devoted come first, then vows. And this is a common place for God's people. And when God is training people for service for the kingdom, it's a great place to be. So there's laws concerning those vows. So you start with the devoted home, devoted life at home. That goes for everybody. Here we see the heads of all tribes, which in 28 and 29 were addressed through that section. In this section, those leaders are supposed to share that with everybody. So you've got this idea that there's this um, biblically, this group of people that are doing what God says to do. And some of them are going to be called to make vows, not necessarily all of them. There's a period of nurturing that's happening. So essentially God's establishing this essential principle of vows, which is keep your word. And keeping your word is a big deal. It's what we teach teenagers. You said you're going to watch your little sister 
why didn't you keep your word, right? You said you're gonna show up at this appointment, but then you missed it and you bailed on it. You didn't keep your word. And being trustworthy is something that we learn as children, I hope, and as we get to be adults, we start to do it. But how much more important with our vows with God, verse two. Vows to other people and vows to God are related to keeping an appointment. Remember last chapter, it was about an appointment that we make. So if you're going to make an appointment, if you're going to vow to come to church every Sunday, then do it. Especially if you made that vow to God. God takes these vows very seriously. So one question is, if there's an element of reward when we keep our vows, and even if we break our vows, then there's a piece of sin there. It's sinful to make a vow and not keep it something we would need to even repent of or apologize for. Why is that the case? And it's consistent in the New Testament, James 5, James 5, 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Like this is something for believers with zeal, making stupid, foolish vows, that that's something you can get judged for. Okay, now I'm, I got to take this serious. This is a big deal. Matthew 5, 30, 37, let your yes be yes, your no be no. For whatever reason is more from these is from the evil one. It is better to not make a vow at all than to make one and not keep it. And man, that for me is super convicting. Lord, I'm going to serve you with all of my life for the rest of my days. And then I don't keep it. And then I feel the guilt and the shame because I'm backsliding or something happens. And that's not how to grow in Christ. God says, don't make those vows. Just show up and do your daily devotions. Make your appointments with me. We'll work together on what you're going to do in your spiritual life. Make sense? So keeping your word is a serious business. I want to contrast that with our current culture. And you all know where I'm going with this. In our current culture, we break vows all the time. It is common American culture. It's, it's assumed in business practice that a contract's only as good as it's val valuable to both people. And then contracts get broken and we have an army of lawyers that help do that. It's assumed that 50% of, that's not assumed. It's a statistical fact that 50% of all marriages in this country end in divorce. Shame on us, right? And to think, well, I'm a Christian, I won't get a divorce. No, actually, it's about the same in the church. You have slightly better odds than other folks do. In fact, the, the worst odds you have is if you live on a, under 12, 20K a year. So extreme poverty gets more divorces. This is funny. Baby boomers get more divorces. Um, Non-Christians do get more divorces than Christians, but not that much less. And then, of course, people that align with a liberal political philosophy get more divorces. I just thought the groups, the fact that there are groups of people that document the divorce rates in our country and where they come from. Debt. We promise people we'll pay off our debt, and then we don't. We just live in debt for the rest of our lives. But we've borrowed money, promised we'd pay it back. That's a vow. And then we don't do it. So business, family life, marriage, friendships, financial stuff. All of these things in our country are things where we make a word to somebody and we break it all the time. And Satan loves this stuff, right? This is disastrous, especially for the people of God, because you say you're a believer and then you break your vow. Well, God, you're, you don't represent God, or God must break his vows too because all his people seem to break their vows just fine. Vows are a big deal, and you don't make them unless you're willing to die for them. And I think that's a generation of people that is impressive to me, right? When you have a, a, a group of people that when they say something, they do everything up to their life to keep that vow. Or don't make them. It's better to not make them. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 5, when you make a vow to God, don't delay in paying it. 
for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vowed. It's better to not vow than to not vow than to vow and not pay. If we're cautious with our words, this is something that comes out of our daily devotions and our weekly time in fellowship with people. This is what people of God work on, is keeping our vows. On the flip side, the person that can do this, they are rare and precious. Solomon said these kind of rare, precious, godly people, they're one in a thousand. And you meet these people that when they speak, they do everything they can do to keep their word. They are precious. They are honorable. They are champions. And they do represent God to the rest of us. These are people of honor. And we need more of those people of honor in our country. We need thousands more of them. And I just, this idea of keeping our vow, it's a big deal. I know I'm spending a lot of time on it. Like last week, I'll go faster in the second half of the chapter. Or in the second chapter. I want to point out this with vows too, because I guess I'm, all week I'm thinking about vows. And I'm thinking how many times in a day we say things sloppily. So there's this idea of sloppy vows too, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. We're giving our word, and then I leave the toilet seat up again, right? And it just keeps happening. At some point, that will irritate my wife to the point of anger, and it causes division between us and other people. I will not eat your fruitcake ever again, and then I can't resist, and I eat the fruitcake. When I break that vow, a lot of broken vows to other people actually break relationships too. You say you're going to do something, do it. Oh, I'll be right there. But you're not right there. But sorry, I ran into some trouble. I can't make it. And you do those kinds of things. Don't make the vows. It's foolish. And you're trying to say something to somebody so that you stand better in their eyes. And we shouldn't be operating in the fear of man. We should operate in the fear of God. So I'll be there God willing is how we kind of say it at Calvary Chapel Twin Cities, right? Well, God willing, I'll be there. And then now that's truth. That's not sloppy words. That's if God allows me to get there, I'll do everything I can do to be there. But I'm not going to make the vow to you because I'm not going to be foolish with my words. Desperate vows. This is kind of the soldier's vow, right? Lord, if you can get me through this, I will give you $20 a day for the rest of my life, right? Those kind of vows, when we can't predict the future, can be foolish vows. And there's stories about that in the Bible too, right? People that make foolish vows and then they got to keep them. Right? But those kind of desperate vows of I really want something and I'll, I'll make a vow if I can get it, it's that bargaining with God, again, foolish and, and, and tough to get into. Let me give you more vows, just in case you haven't thought about vows enough. When you take a job with somebody and make a contract with them, that's a vow. Right? You say, I'm going to work for you for one year and then you get a horrible boss and you just quit three weeks later. Well, you're breaking your vow. So why did you make the vow for one year? Why not just work it at will? Obligatory vows, restrict, restricting vows. I will go on this diet and I will not eat these things. And then how long does that last? It's better to not make the vow than to start vowing things to yourself, to God, to other people. Just don't do it, right? The Nazarene vow is another one. These are never required things and God doesn't require vows in the Bible. It's crystal clear they're not required. But here we are in the book of Numbers with rules for vows when they do get made. So if you're going to make a vow, you can have that. All that to say this goes to the heads of tribes. There's accountability with vows, and I think that's really important because we're going to get into male-female things if you're reading down the chapter. The head of a household in ancient Israeli society, there were probably scores of people that lived under that head of household. And head of household owned everything in that. They owned all the sheep and all the flocks and everything. So if someone in that household starts vowing sheep away, they're actually making vows with other people's stuff. 
So God makes these kind of rules for women in that household that you need to, there is a check and balance. You can't just give away things that aren't yours. Does that make sense? But that said, the Bible does make a difference between males and females here. And this is for some of you, maybe a contentious area for some of you, not as we always get into things that are controversially, let me say this, we can have different opinions of on these things, but let's base the differences in our opinions on what the word of God says. And from there we can have conversation. But let's first hear what God says on this. Verse one, then Moses spoke. I like, this is the thing. It's no accident. It's a big deal. Um, Young men that live in these households could live in these households for a long time before they get head of household tribe status. So younger guys, I know Grant still lives in our house. Grant would still be considered a young man because he lives in my house. So ultimately this rule for how promises and vows get made, he wouldn't be out doing my business dealings. I would take those on. And Grant, as long as he's under my roof, would be under my roof. Women, however, if we look at Proverbs 31, women and wives, they do go out and make business dealings. And they do operate as leaders in these situations. So we get to verse 3. If a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then the vows that stand and every agreement which he has bound herself shall stand. This is revolutionary. Modern readers read this and think, oh, this is horrible to women. Like, think of the standard, right? Um, no ancient world society had this much validity and credibility that women could speak and it was real. So to put any kind of limitation on that here, we're still moving light years ahead of, of surrounding Midianite, Hittite, of Phoenician cultures, Roman culture. You can even go forward in history quite a ways. This idea that women could make a, a vow and it held and it stuck is a big deal. But let's just talk about girls that are still living in their father's home. But if her father overrules her, verse 5, on the day that he hears it, then none of her vows nor her agreements which she has bound herself to shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father has overruled her. Women can speak and make vows. You got that out of these verses? So point one, they can be vetoed by the head of household because they might be vowing things that aren't theirs to vow. Point two, and the head of house has a chance to respond to it. They get one chance to respond to it. Compare that to even to some of today's like Iranian culture. Husbands and head of households can, can overrule a woman's word years after she's given it to somebody. But biblically speaking, you get one chance, men, head of households, you get one chance to make that right. Otherwise, you are bound to that vow also. Women and men then work together in all other regards in Israeli society. But when they make a promise, that promise has to be agreed upon. I'll give you an example of this in Stephanie's marriage because we still do this. If you ask me, can we hang out on Friday? I will say, I don't know. Because for me to make that vow is to ignore the fact that my wife keeps the calendar. So it's very similar. And I'm re reversing the genders here, but we still do this. This is called good teamwork. Because if Steph likes to, she keeps the calendar in her brain. It's like a magic calendar brain. I have no idea. Putting numbers with days has never made sense to me. So if we're going to make something, I don't want to cross paths with what she's already planning on the calendar. So I just direct people to her. If I'm going to make a vow to the Lord and the Lord has put heads of household in authority, as we saw earlier in, in numbers, then we're talking about the crossing of hairs and husbands and wives getting along with each other. If you want to vow about my ministry service, you need to talk to my husband because as a family, we kind of work together on that. 
So I don't want to vow to volunteer for Mache unless I've talked to my husband because he may have other ideas with what's going on with our time too. So we're just going to put somebody in authority over that, which God has done. That's a different way to look at this, but I think a biblical way to look at this. That said, you have problems with men being head of household, then you and the Bible have to have some conversations. Verse six, if she takes a husband, I love the word if. Women, you don't have to take a husband. If you don't want to be submitted to somebody in that kind of a way, you still have a choice. Biblically, this is light years ahead of any ancient society that we've seen anywhere, right? If she takes a husband while bound by her vows or a rash utterance from her lips by which she's bound herself and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day he hears it, you get one day, then her vows stand and her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on that day and hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and, and she uttered with her lips by which she's bound herself and the Lord will release her. Equivalent wise, Sometimes I'm an idiot and say, sure, sound it. Friday sounds great. And then my wife says, oh, no, 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 no. We have plans on Friday. And the head of our calendar in our household overrules me and it's embarrassing to me because I made a rash utterance and I was foolish with it. If you want healthy marriages, the two of you got to work together and you got to know who's going to have say over what. And especially when it comes to ministry to God, which this is a vow to the Lord in verse 3. When it comes to a family's ministry to God and how they're going to serve the church or serve the Bible study or serve in devotions, that's something that God's saying, I want women to submit that or leave that decision in part to their husbands. It doesn't say that husbands get to be tyrants and rule over their wives. So that's a whole other study. You can go to Corinthians for that or Ephesians, I'm sorry. Um, as a young lady marries, then you can see the transition goes from her father to her husband, which is why even today fathers hand off their daughters in traditional marriages and weddings, uh, is that there's a transition there. Um, if we as a family are going to purchase something, so even vows to other humans, the big, huge purchases, Steph and I have conversations about that. We talk. And at the end of the day, I say, you know, maybe we can't get that super ultra microwave this year. And at some level where Steph gets authority over calendars, in our marriage, I kind of have authority over major purchases. But that's not to say Steph doesn't make vows and she doesn't buy things. It's not to say there's some tyrannical relationship there. It is saying that at the end of the day, if we can't come to an agreement on it, pretty much I'm the one looking at the books. So it's, that's just kind of how we work those things out. So there is an exception here for verse 9. Also, any vow of a widow or divorced woman. In other words, this is kind of amazing for when this was written. We have single women that run their own households. So you would think, is there some sort of weird patriarchal thing there? And the Bible's amazingly advanced on this when it comes to just that idea of which she has bound herself, that shall stand against her. I love that vows stand against us. <laughs> like they're a debt that we put out in the world that we don't have to put out there. Um, but women that are uh, widowed or divorced, they are the head of their own household. Do you see that in verse 9? They have ultimate authority over both their calendars and their finances and their ministry decisions for the kingdom. So the Bible just puts this, lays this out. Uh, for those people, I think the Christians that were uh, fighting for women's right to vote back in the 1920s, they were reading stuff like this going, wait, if I'm head of household, I should have a right to vote. And there should be an equality of vote in America. So Christians led the way on some of those equal rights amendments because they're reading 3,000-year-old documents that say women should be, they have a binding uh, capacity when they're on their own. 
Verse 10, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself to an agreement with an oath and her husband heard it and made no response to her which she did not overrule, then all her vows shall stand. And every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her mouth, from her lips concerning her vows and concerning the agreement that is binding to her shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will release her. This is an interesting legal language, right? So we get all these things about vows and God seems to have an order to how we make vows to him. First, don't have to make them if you don't want to. But if you're going to make a commitment to the Lord, it is forever. It is binding. And the word that we have is binding. This is an interesting setup for Jesus Christ. If we say to Jesus, come into my heart and rule my life, we're making a commitment and a connection with God. And the only thing we need to make that a perfectly binding commitment spiritually is the words from our mouth. All we have to do is pray that the Lord comes into our heart and we make a deal with God and it happens. It's binding legally. So I kind of like the legal language in this, if you think about it as that. All of faith is based on the assurance that God will keep his word. And so if people aren't reading the Bible and the only access they have to anything that looks like Jesus is the light in your life and you break your word, you're breaking something. You're breaking an image of Christ that is so central to God's character that people won't be able to come to God. Does that make sense? I hope this lays a thick burden on your shoulders. The words out of your mouth matter. Pow, pow, excuse me, powerfully matter. How much damage do we do to the kingdom when we break our promises? And this is making you feel super guilty. I'm just going to say right now, there's forgiveness. Don't worry. It's all good. You got to pray for that forgiveness. God will redeem and heal and make it happen. And, and, but we got to think a little bit about why God's telling these people that the vows are so important. Spending a whole chapter on it. Verse 13, every vow and every binding oath, that's where I got licensed to talk about like every vow, like job, just the jobs we take and loans we take out. Every vow and every binding to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. Now if her husband makes no response what, what, whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows and all her agreements that are binding to her. Women have complete and total authority. And when the guy isn't active and leading, the women can run things. Perfectly okay. I know husbands that like to have a little more control over what happens in their household. And I know husbands where the woman pretty much runs everything. And the Bible says that's perfectly okay. Because for some marriages, God made that couple that way. Where she's just got her head more together with that kind of stuff than he does. And if he's willing to let her have that leadership and that's the relationship there, that's beautiful. It's fine. Her vows are as binding as anybody else's vow. Now, say that to an Amicalite and see what they think. Or a, or a Midianite. You know, they're going to get killed in the next chapter. But this was not ancient society. This was not ancient society in any way, shape, or form. And the Bible's saying there's something different here. Women have every ability to make vows, contracts, and bindings. And if that guy's a passive dude, she's running the household, she, run, she makes these decisions and they're totally binding. They're an affliction to her soul. <laughs> because the, um, verse 15, but if he does make them void after he's heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. Right? So this is something to guys. Girls, if you don't like the idea that guys can have ultimately at the end of the day, this kind of decision-making authority, guys, don't get married if you're not willing to die for her. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. It's easy to submit to someone who's willing to give their life up for you. It's not easy to submit to someone who's selfish and cares only about himself. Jerks. Don't do that. That's not manhood. If you want to be a man, understand that when you make a vow, you keep it with your life. It's not a small thing. It's a big deal. And don't be willing to take a wife that you won't die for. So the balance is there, right? If you don't love her enough that you'd give your life for her, then why would you want this bearing of her guilt, right? Why would you want that? Who wants to ever get married if you're going to bear another human being's guilt? Thankfully, God gave us a passion for each other that we say stupid things like, yes, I'll give my whole life. And that's the same passion and love, by the way, that draws us to Christ, where we say the same thing to our, our spiritual groom and say, Lord, I, I'll give it all up for you. Absolutely. You can have my life. And it's the same thing that drives us to sacrifice when you see people that are willing to give their life for the benefit of others, a soldier's sacrifice a husband protecting his home when it's being invaded, right? Those are the sorts of things where the woman's going to survive because the guy's going to throw his life right out in front and protect her. For ladies, that's a lot easier. So this is God's vision and image. But remember, all of Numbers is a spiritual talk about our spiritual life too. That in our spiritual life, we submit to God the Father. Ultimately, he gets all the decisions. When God's silent, we can do things. And God's okay with it. So there's a relationship here we have with God too. You ever prayed to God and you just get no answer? All right, God, I'm going to move forward. I'm going to do this. And the Lord's like, all right, I've stayed quiet. So move forward with it. It's either going to go good or bad, but let's go. Silence then is no excuse for the guys. Ignorance is no excuse for the guys. You have to be an active participant in this sort of thing. And when that vow gets broken, the guy gets the guilt for it. What kind of love is that, that someone would take the guilt of someone else and own it by law and spiritually? And God not only thinks this is such an amazing thing, he gave his only son in the exact same way to show us what love looks like, to show us that what greater love does a man have that will lay down his life for his friend? Throw it right out there. Such a beautiful image. Ultimately speaking, God gives this gift and we are grafted into his house, Roman 11:17. There's only one sacrifice of Jesus Christ that covers this, Hebrews 9:28. It's his blood on the crossbeam of our home like a Passover lamb that that makes our sins get overlooked. He's the propitiation for our sin, 1 John 2:2, 2, 2. and the whole household is covered because God so loved the world, 3:16. God's our husband. And he's going to take us in and take all of our guilt for us, for every foolish and stupid thing we say, do, and are. Isn't that powerful? I wouldn't want to destroy this image. And the, as much as I can reflect this in my marriage, in my parenting, in my friendships with all of you, the more I can do that, the more I look like God to you and the more like our relationship looks like God to anybody who visits. Right? So ask some new people. That's what they're looking for is believers that love each other with that kind of love. And anything less is fake, right? John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In every family, God ordains a structure. And this 
To an outsider, to a non-believer, this looks like cruel oversight. To a believer, this looks like sacrificial love. And it's really hard to explain this to non-believers, which is why non-believers go straight to these chapters to point out the inequities. And this isn't about inequity, this is about love. Did you not just read the last two chapters? Did you not read the whole book before that? This is about love and it only comes out of that place, which is why I spent so much time saying day-by-day -day devotion first. And if that's not there, why would you get into these kind of vow-making arrangements with other people? Don't make vows. Better to not do it. Paul said it's better to not get married. If you want to just give yourself to the Lord and do that, great. But some of us burn with love for other people. And then marriage is probably good, right? Always grants, God grants authority and he gives that authority accountability at the same time. Verse 16, there are this, these are the statutes which, which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife, between a father and his daughter in her youth in her father's house. And I think we live in a culture that directly opposes all of this. So we do. We live in a place that just does not necessarily respect. And this can be abrasive even to our own ears a little bit. We teach our kids that there's no differences between men and women. But God seems to think there's differences between men and women. It's directly contrary. We teach young people that we divide all of our home responsibilities equally. But God's clearly telling us that there's some things that are not equally divided. They go in different places. And how are you going to work that out? And part of how you do it is you, you fall in love with each other and you figure out how to live life together. And who's going to take what on and which vows are going to be her vows and which vows are going to be my house and vows. And we work that out. She does calendars. I do large purchases. She spends all the rest of the money. I love you, honey. This gets so broken by Satan too. I can say this. This is where this gets really ugly. Men who aren't serving the Lord and doing daily devotions, they become harsh, tyrannical, nasty people. It's horrible. Or worse, the guy becomes passive and ignores his wife and doesn't take care of her emotional. And just, yeah, whatever, honey. Even worse. On the flip side, women that become dripping, dripping faucets and are constantly nagging their husbands. Oh my goodness. It's better to be on the roof of the corner of the roof of your house than be in the house with a woman with a dripping faucet. And that's in Proverbs somewhere, right? Do you know the verse? Okay. Children, this is in Proverbs 19.13, a foolish son is the ruin of his father and the contentions of a wife are continual dripping, right? It's so true that Satan wants to break these relationships and make it the ugliest thing in the world because think of what that does for the picture of Christ that other people get in our lives. Bad marriages, pff, who wants to be a Christian? They can't even stay married. Rebellious kids, they can't even raise their own kids. What do they have to say about Christianity? You know. But I want independent liberty. I want to do whatever I want to do. Yet I don't want to necessarily submit to other people or to God. It's, a, it's exactly what Satan comes after. What if, the, what if our flesh is actually the opposite of what God's asking us to do here? What if in our flesh guys are actually predisposed to be passive and not care. And women are predisposed to be leaders and, and make decisions over everything without giving guys room to have their voice. What if everything here has to do with getting closer to God before we can have healthy relationships? And this is really challenging. I, I, we can talk about it afterwards and I just want to throw it out, but this, this begs a lot of hard questions about who we are, how we relate to others, and how we do our vows. Numbers 31 keeps going in this theme. <laughs> 
if you want to see it that way. It says and at the beginning of verse one. This is not a then. We've had a lot of then chapters, right? This is and. So in addition to your devotions and your vows, we're going to go make battle and we're going to do spiritual warfare. If you want to see this as an image, we're going to do battle with the enemy. And if our vows are broken, we're not doing very good battle with the enemy. But, and the Lord spoke to Moses and said, take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterwards, you shall be gathered to your people. Numbers 24, the Midianites actively attempted to attack Israel. But remember with Balaam and Balak, they couldn't do it because they couldn't get their spiritual stuff in line. But they did send women down in the camp to seduce the men and cause sexual impurity all over the camp. So they actually attacked Israel in a kind of way. And I just want to point that out because this is a response to an attack. This is not just willfully slaughtering people, right? But we are going to slaughter some people. Midianites historically are a large group of nomadic people, which is why sometimes the Midianites are in Moab, sometimes they're in the Negev, and they're in different spots in the Bible. It's because they moved. So the Midianites were a people that had, were largely imploding on their on their on the corruption and the nastiness as a people. They were a civilization in decline, largely because of these gods they worshiped, these Baal gods, that caused them to do really ugly, nasty, corrupt, wicked stuff. Like, here's a nation of good, nice people. Let's send prostitutes in and make them corrupt. This is what motivated the Midianites. They were a horrible kind of people in that sense. And the vengeance that God's talking about here is not human vengeance, and I think that's important to point out. It is not our job as believers to take vengeance. In fact, every instance in the Bible where people take vengeance, it's evil. Every instance in the, where God takes vengeance or acts, asks his people to take vengeance, it's justice. It's a response to sin and corruption that's out there. And God decides when to do it. Remember with Jonah, he wanted the vengeance, and God said, nah, we're going to let these people repent. Right? So God sometimes does and sometimes doesn't because he knows the heart. But when we take vengeance, we generally screw that up because we're not God. Afterward, this is in response to verse 3. So, so Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe, all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. When it comes to spiritual war, when it comes to this image of spiritual war, notice that not the whole congregation goes out to do battle. I think that's a big deal. There are 2 million people here, 12,000 get selected to do this. In the church, not all of us get into it at the, the, in, the, in the courts. Not all of us do battle with, with cultural relativists. Not all of us are apologists and, and, and get into debates with people. And I think there's a reason for that. God picks these people selectively, like it says here. These people that are going to do battle for the church, like the Ravi Zacharias part. I know he's one of your favorites. What I love about Ravi Zacharias is he does battle, but he has so much grace and love when he does it. Very rare set of gifts that can get into an argument and love the person. And you leave the argument feeling more loved than when you came into it. You know these people? They're rare, but they're our warriors in the church. These are the people that do battle for us. They're awesome. I get into arguments and I like slapping down arguments. This is not a God warrior. This is a human warrior where I like beating people. I love a good argument. Christina knows this. We've argued a few times. I love this. She's sitting in my office at times when I'll get into it with people and she'll be just like, tickers. Um, 
I'm not one of these people, but this idea that God handpicks his soldiers and, and 12,000 out of 2 million, Israel could have put a much bigger army together if they wanted to. And they could have gone down and protested if they wanted to, but they don't. They send out 12,000 people against a much larger Midianite force. It's like a Gideon thing. So pay attention to the numbers. This is less than 0.05% of the population, right? Relatively small. In other words, they're going to war with total faith because 12,000 does not beat the Midianite armies at all unless you believe God's going to show up. Amen? So then Moses sent them to war. 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to war with the Phineas. Remember the guy with the zeal that said no sin in this camp? The son of Eleazar the priest with holy articles and signal trumpets in hand. So what do they carry with them? Trumpets. This is how they're going to do battle? You see something broken with this system from a worldly perspective? Wait, the thing you're going in with is holy articles and signal trumpets? Okay, God will do that. And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. This is traditional in the ancient world. You kill the males so that they don't heal and then come back and fight you. That's why you kill the males. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. These are the five kings that all gathered together to attack Israel with, with Balak. Balaam, this kind of magic soothsayer that was, was trying to curse them. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. So they did have swords, but that's not the most important thing they brought because it wasn't listed up in, in verse 6. And the children of Israel took the women and Midian captive with their little ones, kids, and took all this, as spoil all their cattle, their flocks, and their goods. They also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt and all their forts. And they took the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Now the word booty, may, may you might think these are pirates. But I'm going to suggest the rest of this chapter is not piracy at all. In fact, when God's people do war, it's really orderly. But look at what they destroy and look at what they keep. You would think the city is the thing you'd want to keep. These are all these beautiful suburban houses with swimming pools in the backyard. This is the stuff you keep and you just move in, right? But they don't. They destroy the cities because Israel's going to build their own cities. They don't need what the world has to offer. I'm not going to beat you up so I can take your stuff. That's not the point here. And the things they keep are the, the, the animals and the women uh, they're going to get in trouble for keeping the women because remember, these women were soldiers and God holds these women accountable as enemies of Israel because they're the ones that came in to seduce the men. Well, they took all these women and I don't know if they should have done that. So Phineas, this priest goes with them. It's interesting that in Israel, the priests are going to go into military combat and they are the moral authority of this country going into combat with the soldiers. America does something similar. We have chaplains. And that's directly built off of this Israel model. You don't send a bunch of young guys out to loot and destroy things and trust that the moral code is going to stay in place. You send priests with these men. We're not pirates. We're not just going to go in and kill, loot, and destroy. right? So they capture the women. They don't defrock the women. right? There's a difference because you're going to do war because we have to, but we're not going to do war like the world does war. It isn't about all destruction. It is about careful discernment. So Balaam, with all his power and all the money he was looking for a few chapters ago, in the end, it's not going to do anything. In Jude 11, this is called the error of Balaam. He sought after money. He tried to make a deal with the world. At the end of the day, he's destroyed. The error of Balaam, something we should all be wary of. 
So he dies with the sinners, even though he wanted to die with the righteous. Verse 12, they brought the captives, the booty. I don't know if you, does your version have booty? Yes. Yeah. All right. I just, it just makes me think of pirates. And the spoil to Moses and to, to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. This looks just like when Abraham did war back in Genesis and he gets done with war and he brings everything and he offers it up to the, to the priest, the priest of Melchizedek. This is significant. You don't go into war and just take stuff for yourself. The point of doing combat, even spiritual warfare, is not so that we can benefit or be rewarded by that. So when somebody says in spiritual warfare thing, we'll do all this stuff for you, but then make sure you give your donation, beware of that. That's not godly at all, even back with these folks. All of the stuff first went to the priests and you offer it all up just like Abraham did. So this is really part of their tradition now. And Moses, verse 13, Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and the captains over hundreds who'd come from the battle. Verse 15, and Moses said to them, why'd you keep all these women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague amongst the congregation of the Lord because of these women. So again, one glance on this as an outsider is God's destroying women and this is really mean and cruel. Another glance at it is these are enemies of Israel and have declared themselves as such and actually attacked Israel's purity in a spiritual way. And God's saying, we don't want this in the camp, right? So just like Phineas, Moses gets upset about this. Verse 17, now therefore kill every male among the little ones, kill every woman who's known a man intimately. That verse is one of the most controversial verses people for that are not believers. If you're not a believer and you haven't read Numbers, that just ordered the death of little children and women. And you pull that out of context and that looks horrible, right? But at the end of the day, in Midianite culture, if those boys grew up to be men, they're obligated by law of vengeance to kill whoever killed their dad. It's a law. They have to. You leave them alive, you have future problems with Midianites. So in this world in which Israel is being birthed, there's this thing, spiritually speaking, as our heart is being birthed for the kingdom, those little pieces of sin that we leave in our heart will grow and develop someday and attack our spirituality in the same way. If we leave any segment of that sin, it's going to grow up and it's going to grow. One of the most depressing stats I ever heard is there was a youth conference in California and at the hotel where all the youth pastors were saying, it was their highest download rate ever for pornography. This is horrible. And this is what God does. You live, leave little bits of sin in your heart and then you go into the ministry, you put this stuff out of order and now you're out representing God to the kingdom but you still haven't got your daily devotions down. You still don't have accountability with brothers and sisters in the faith. And you put yourself out there. Satan's going to use you to destroy the reputation of the kingdom. And what's sad is that that's happening everywhere in America right now. Which is why I was like, we're going to do Bible study. We're going to just learn this stuff. It's not hard, but it's important that we submit to the way God wants it to be, not the way we want to do it. It has to go in order. And that's an image that we're supposed to be learning from, right? Well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a movie. It's just a thing. It's that. No, it is a big deal. It's a seed. You're leaving a little baby Midianite in your heart who's going to grow up one day, and it's going to attack your heart. 
that little baby Miniotite is sure cute right now, but it's going to grow up to be something, right? And you guys all think it's funny that I make fun of Disney, but Disney plants little Midianite kids in our children's hearts. Little messages like, you're the most important thing in the world. You are special. If you just believe in yourself enough, you can do anything. Those are little Midianite children that we're putting in their hearts, and it's very intentional. All right, I'll get off the Disney thing, because Bridget will call me up and yell at me and say, come on, Dickers. Such a cute Midianite kid. But keep alive for yourself all the young ladies who have not known a man intimately. And in this world, that means they're pure. Keep them alive. Those, those little things in your heart that are pure, we're going to keep those. We will take those. And this is not universal slaughter. And this is not necessarily genocide. This is selective discernment between the sinful and the future sin and the non-sinful and the pure. And God does the same thing when he's going to gather up people at the end of the age. He's going to keep the pure. He's going to get rid of the rest. He's going to burn the wheat and the chaff, and he's going to keep the good stuff. And that's what he's asking his people to do right now at the very history of things. From a God perspective, this is beautiful. This is amazing that God's putting an event in history that shows us the nature of how we can form and shape our hearts. Verse 19, as for you, remain outside the camp seven days because you've killed people. Remember the law? If you're handling dead things, you shouldn't be in the camp for a while. Let's take some time, quarantine yourself a little bit. Their quarantine only lasted seven days, though. And, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any stain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. Purify all your garments. Everything's made of, that's made of leather, everything woven of goat's hair, and everything made of wood. In other words, there's some things that can be purified and there's some things you get rid of. And you leather stains, and it absorbs stuff, right? Gold doesn't, and it doesn't absorb things. Gold is pure. We're going to keep the gold, but we're going to throw away the leather. Folks in our lives, spiritually, we got to do the same thing. We want to go to spiritual war. We want to encounter the world and deal with the world. And the Bible says, set yourself apart. Part of what it's saying is if you're going to interact with the world, you got to start thinking about what's going to stick in your heart and what's not going to stick in your heart. And you've got to discern between those things. This is a complex theological message, but it's so simple a child can understand it. Bad stuff, go away. Good stuff, I'm going to keep that and nurture it. And we're going to bring those things to the temple and present them to God, right? So Israel's threatened by this spiritual purity as much as by the military purity. The Midianites pose a threat to them, but the Midianites get dealt with in a very selective, discerning way, which is unheard of in human history at this point. It's the Jewish people that introduced the idea of reserved warfare into the world and Christians that have continued that. And I'm saying that as an American history teacher. This idea that you don't kill your enemies, that's a very Judeo-Christian idea, that we're going to discern that and there might be some redeemable things there. Um, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Isn't that a tough complex idea? But then you live life and you realize, yeah, I suck. <laughs> I do everything wrong. And the only good stuff in my life is the stuff that the Lord has helped to nurture and, and grow. It's a tough message, folks. Sorry about that. Purify your garments. Take discernment. Verse 21, Then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure fire. What a message. 
You shall put through the fire and it shall be clean and it shall be purified with the water of purification. But all that cannot endure the fire, you shall put through water. And you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean. And afterwards you can come into the camp. There are some things that can be redeemed. Praise the Lord because I hope I'm one of those. If God can redeem me, he can redeem anybody. So you handle the sin, you either burn it or you wash it away. Those are great images, and this is a spiritual image too. We go through triers, trials of life. There are fires that purify us, and they're not easy. The Bible promises trials. And those trials that we go through are things that we have to go through because God's refining us. And he uses the language of putting things through the fire for the rest of the Bible. Kind of cool. And this image of being washed by the water gets used all the way through the rest of the Bible. And they're born right here. You're going to do combat and you're going to mix it up with the world a little bit. Purify your heart with fire. Wash yourself in the word. And it's this consistent thing. Job says, when he tested me, the Job, right? Job had some trials. When he tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Job's wish is the one, the wish that every believer should have. When we're tested, we're going to get through it like gold. I knew this kid in seventh grade. <laughs> this kid's name was Spencer. And it broke my heart because he got there the first day of school. His mom came into the classroom with him, which is weird in middle school, right? His mom came in and he said, I just need to tell you, Mr. Dickers, Spencer just got diagnosed with leukemia cancer and he might not make it through the school year. And I was like, dang, nice to meet you, Spencer. I mean, what do you say in that situation? And Spencer's just like, mm. he's just holding himself, straight backbone, like just, mm-hmm, that's what's happened. And I'm like, wow, you guys have wrestled with some trials. This is crazy. And Spencer goes, and I want to tell you this. I came into this loving my Lord, and I'm going to leave this loving my Lord. He's saying this to a secular school teacher, right? And he's just like, I came into this loving the Lord. No matter how much pain I get in this year, I want to leave loving the Lord. So if I have to miss school for chemo and I have to do this kind of stuff, I want to do the homework. I don't want you to think, give me excuses. I want to keep up because I came into this loving the Lord. I'm going to leave this loving the Lord. And I was like, little dude, you're awesome. This is this kid taught me what it looked like to go through trials. And I'll be darned if he didn't go through one of the roughest years I've ever seen. Right? And he survived it, which is the good news. He got through this stuff. And last I knew, he was still kicking. And he went through this stuff. He went through the fires that most of us can't even imagine. And he just did it with joy and peace. And every kid in his class saw what it looked like for a believer to go through trials. When God does that, it's golden. It shines. It's beautiful when God does that to people. When we go through trials, there are people watching us do it. Here's another verse. I'm going to go to the water. Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Remember at the beginning of this chapter, it said, and... This is what goes with husbands and wives. This is why the husbands and wives stuff and the authority stuff is, it trips a lot of us up. When we're washing each other with the word every day, when husbands are washing their wife in the water of the word, you're studying the Bible together, man, it's beautiful. Baptism becomes this image of sanctification and washing by the water. We still sing songs, you know, where we're washed by the water. And it's this idea that things can be washed away and cleaned and kept. And as humans, our souls are like those metals. They can be redeemed. I hope I'm more golden than lead, but I'm probably somewhere in the middle, right? Most of us are. 
But metals can be burned, they can be put through the fire, and they can endure, and God knows that about his people. I'm going to really just read through the, the rest of the chapter here with a couple comments. They're going to divide the plunder, right? And, and, and what I want to walk away from this, even though it's a very long kind of passage, is there's an order to how God does spiritual warfare. And it's not just run out and grab everything you can and bring it home to your family, right? There's just this structure and order to how God does this. And I think Christians have a lot to learn by the fact that when we go and encounter the world, we can do it with grace. We can go through the fire, be washed by the water. And then there's this order to how everything happens. Listen, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast and you and Elysia, the priest, the and the chief fathers of the congregation, uh, so there's a group of people making decisions, and divide the plunder in two parts between those who took part in the war and went out to battle and all the rest of the congregation. And Levi, levy a tribute for the Lord on the men of war who went out to battle, uh, one of every 500 of the persons, the cattle, the donkey, and the sheep, and take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a heave offering to the Lord. And from the children of Israel, half you shall take from one of every 50, drawn from the persons, the cattle, the donkeys, the sheep, from all the livestock, and give them to Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Moses and Eleazar the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. God's keeping an orderly process, and you don't get to keep all your loot, right? That's not what warfare is about. Warfare is a horrible thing, and, he, and, and we're training these soldiers to realize you're not just getting a bunch of stuff for yourself. The booty remaining from the plunder, which, which the men of war had taken, was 675,000 sheep, which means there's more Midianites than there were the 12,000 going out to fight them. Much, much, much more, right? Uh, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 persons in all. They captured more people than they were. You guys getting the balance? The, this kind of thing here? And, and they don't even point it out. It's just that's how it is because God's fighting their battles. Of all the women who had not known a man in, intimately, 36 says, and the half, the portion of those who had gone out to war was in number 337,500 sheep. Somebody had to count those. I feel sorry for that person. And the Lord's tribute of the sheep was 675. And the cattle were 36,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 72. And the donkeys were 35,500, 35, of which the Lord's tribute was 61. And the persons were 16,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 32 people. So 32 people got to enter the service of the tabernacle that were Midianites. So clearly this is not like we hate Midianites. Some of these Midianites, the pure ones, actually get invited to work for the Levites. What an amazing thing God does here. He actually integrates those people into the society. That's awesome. And, then, and, and it's not just because Moses' wife was Midianite, right? This is just because this is how God operates. He takes the pure and he redeems them. The persons were 16,000 and the Lord's tribute was 32 people. So the Moses gave the tribute, which was the Lord's heave offering to Eleazar the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. It's orderly. These are not pillaging pirates. These are Israelites. Different kind of war on planet Earth just got initiated. And from the children of Israel's half, which Moses separated from the men who fought, 43, now the half belonging to the congregation was 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 3,500 donkeys, and 16,000 people. And from the children of Israel's half, Moses took one of every 50, drawn from man and beast, and gave them to the Levites, who kept charge of the tabernacle of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Um, then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of the thousands, and the captains of the hundreds, 
they came near to Moses and they said to Moses, your servants have taken the count of the men of war who are under our command and not a man of us is missing. Wait a second. Did you guys catch that? 12,000 people went to war against a significantly larger force and then they do a head count at the end and every head is there. Not one loss. That's absolutely and totally a miracle in that case. Because that doesn't happen. In warfare, people are fighting. You can trip on a stone and hit your head and die. I mean, people just die in warfare. It's chaos. Not in this case. Not one person died. That's got to give Israel some enthusiasm. You can just see future General Joshua going, yes, we can do anything with the Lord God Almighty. We, we went out with 12,000 people and came back with not one casualty and captured more people than we actually sent out. Therefore, we've brought an offering to, for, for the Lord, what every man found of ornaments and gold, armlets, bracelets, signets, rings, earrings, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. This is fascinating. The generals, the leaders, and the captains said, we're going to bring an additional offering to the Lord, and we just want to give it to God, because this was stunning. And this is the kind of vow that soldiers can make. Remember, this is and with the last chapter that you say, Lord, you get me through this, I'll give all the bracelets to you. And so these captains and generals are keeping their word, right? They're giving everything to the Lord that they have to know that this is the Lord's victory, not ours. When we fight spiritual battles and have any victories at all, this is how we should respond. All, it all belongs to God. You like that sermon? Great. Praise the Lord. It all goes to God. You like the music this morning? Praise the Lord. That was awesome. Street ministry? You were touched by having some Christian songs at the farmer's market? Praise the Lord, all the glory goes to God. You can have the bracelets, you can even have the tassels. So Moses and Eleazar, the priest, received the gold from them, all fashioned of ornaments. They're just given this extra offering, because why not? And all the gold of the offering that they offered to the Lord from the captains of thousands, the captains of hundreds, was 16,750 shekels. That's a fortune. The men of war had taken spoil, every man for himself. These are soldiers that aren't out for themselves. They're not doing their own thing. They're not bringing glory to themselves. We don't get one name of any one of these generals and leaders. No recognition. You'd think you'd list the men off like David did, which is a whole different chapter. But in this chapter, it's not about who does the fighting. It's about the nation of Israel moving forward. So that's where we go. Every, even in war, these guys are givers, and they just give everything up. So you come back to the controversy here. Is this a war crime or is this the most gracious form of war that the planet had ever seen up to this date? And I would argue for the latter being a history guy. This is just really incredible what's going on here. The sacrifices they give uh, are, the, are the opposite thing. Uh, you know, the biblical takeaways here is that God knows the, the future of them. He knows that Midian's going to be an ongoing issue for Israel. So God orders this to happen. Another takeaway here, the biblical takeaway is the priests are overseeing the warfare and go in with a minor force so it requires faith in God to win this battle. Third kind of biblical perspective here is that this mirrors the faith that we saw with Zelophad's daughters. They wanted the land they hadn't even seen yet. These soldiers are going forward to win a battle that's impossible to win. It's kind of amazing. And there's another piece here, and this one's tougher. Women from that last chapter and this chapter have clear moral individual responsibility like nothing we've seen in any other ancient text. The Midianite women are held account accountable and these women that are running households are held accountable for their decisions too. 
So this elevates women to a, an amazing status in the ancient world. If Israel's our heart or image of our heart in the journey that we're on, I'll wrap up with these thoughts. The devotion comes before anything we've talked about tonight. Devotion isn't there. We're not supposed to be out doing battle. We're lost in sin, so we start devotions. We get to church and we hang out with believers. Then God directs us in what we're going to do and who we're going to deal with. And not all of us get to get into battles with people. Some of us just clean up the trash at the end of the night and do the dishes. And that's okay. That's part of supporting the soldiers that go out. There is an authority structure. There are teachers and pastors that oversee how we're going to study the word. And in that sense, that's a huge responsibility. We should hate our own sin enough to get rid of it. And we should celebrate the pure enough to keep it and cherish it and draw it close. Contrasted here or, or shown in, the, in, in kind of those images, we are all morally responsible adults even after we're saved. And we are accountable to the Lord God Almighty and Jesus Christ. Spiritual war is then not ours to win. That's a tough concept in the church right now. It's not our battle. The battle is the Lord's. For we walk in the flesh. We do, we do not war according to our flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. When you put that next to numbers, doesn't that just make more sense? We're going to take every thought and discern the good from the bad and make it obedient to Christ. <sighs> Blows you away. By the way, that's 2 Corinthians 10.3. We don't get to tear down strongholds for our own benefit. We don't. There's no profit in it for us. We just do it. So I'll wrap it up. Verse 54, And Moses and Eleazar the priests received the gold from the captains of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tabernacle of meeting as a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord. All of this is supposed to be remembered. It's a memorial. Pay attention and remember these stories. Isn't it awesome that we get to come and read these stories and we can be blessed in our own lives from it? So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the recording of it the beauty of it and the narrative of it, Lord, that it was true as an event, but it's also spiritually just rings true for our hearts. Uh, Lord, teach us your ways, not our own. When we go to battle, Lord, may we do it at your command. When we're in our households, Lord, may we understand that you are the head of our household and Christ is the head of the church. And we all submit to you. At the end of the day, Lord, sometimes you'll be silent and sometimes you'll speak, but we submit to you. And it's so much easier to do that, Lord, because you've given your life for us already. We don't even have to trust that you'll do it. You've already done it. So thank you for that gift. Thank you for that joy. Uh, thank you that you fill our hearts with peace, even in the middle of trials, as you are shaping us like gold and you are refining us in the fire. Lord, we thank you for washing us in the water of the word, uh, that we can each week, each day, each, each month, we can gather and we can study your word and just be washed and cleansed in it. Lord, we are always looking for ways to serve you. But may that come after our relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to put first things first. To honor you morning and night. To honor you on the Sabbath. And Lord, to serve you with our heart and with our love. Because everything else after that is just noise. Lord, this Israel, this heart of passion for you. And the war they start to do. And the strongholds they tear down. And the cities they conquer. We want to see that, Lord, but we want to get to know you first. And we know that we will see it because you are looking for people to harvest. So, Lord, I pray for each person in this room. Some of us came here broken tonight. 
with heavy hearts. Some of us came here with joy and just on a spiritual high. But Lord, train and teach all of us where we're at. May your Holy Spirit move in our hearts. May your words dwell with us all week. And Lord, teach us to love one another as you've first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.